You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains were wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down to him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now they are on a hillside. A great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And he heard, heard, heard numbering about 2,000 rush down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is the word of the Lord. I will be reading from Mark 5:14 through 20. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the man who had had the legend. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him to, that he might be with him. But he refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all men marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've got water up here with me, and uh, I've got a bit of a voice problem, but the good news is that I think I might finally be going through puberty, so, <laughs> so that's, that's good news. <clears throat> We're going to be continuing through the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, so far, we've looked at the prologue in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower. And this week, we are looking at the story of the man who has been possessed by demons in Mark chapter 5. A few weeks ago, I told you all about how when Tony Campolo came to speak to First Baptist 10 years ago, uh, I was an intern here at the church. 
after he spoke at our service, uh, I, it was my job to drive him to St. Louis so that he could catch his flight. So after church, we got into my little Ford Focus, and we started going north on I-55. And I said to him, Dr. Campolo, whenever you are ready to stop for lunch, you just let me know. And he said, well, I'm not really hungry right now. Let's just drive until we see something that looks good. Well, I was starving, and I was ready for lunch. But every time we passed somewhere, Tony Campolo would say, Nah, not hungry, just keep driving. So we passed a few restaurants in Perryville. How about here? I said, Nah, not hungry, just keep driving. We passed by the exit at St. Genevieve. How about here? Nah, not hungry, just keep going. We got to Festus. Dr. Campolo, this is a great place with a, a lot of options. Nah, not hungry, just keep driving. We got to an exit between St. Louis and Festus that had nothing. And he suddenly said, pull over and let's find something. There was nothing near the off-ramp, so he said, let's just keep driving until we find something. I was keeping my eyes peeled for like an Applebee's or a McDonald's. Finally, he saw somewhere and he said, here we go, pull into here. It was a seedy, hole-in-the-wall bar named Hotties. <clears throat> and as we were getting out of the car, Tony Campolo turned to me and said, you're 21, right? I turned 21 like the week before. <clears throat> we walked in, and all of the folks who were, you know, sitting in a bar on a Sunday afternoon turned to see a wide-eyed college student and an old Baptist preacher walk in. In a loud voice, Tony Campolo called out, You got any food? The bartender said, Uh, yeah, we have some cheeseburgers. He said, Great, we'll take two. I remember there was a section of the place that was roped off, and it said that the dancing began at nine. I remember seeing a couple poles on a raised platform. And Tony Campolo was just acting like there was nothing odd about this at all. He even made small talk with the waitress, and he told her that we were just a couple of Baptists looking for lunch. She smiled and said, my grandpa was a Baptist preacher. <clears throat> As I was sitting there in that bar on a Sunday afternoon, I remember thinking, this is not where I thought I was going to be ending up today. Well, in our story for this morning, that is exactly what the disciples are feeling too. They are looking around at their surroundings, and they are realizing where Jesus has led them, and they are saying to themselves, how did we get here? This is not where I thought I was going to end up today. And in order to understand why they feel that way, you have to back up just a little bit from our passage in Mark chapter 5. Last week, we looked at Jesus' first parable in Mark chapter 4. He spends some more time teaching after that, and then he and his disciples get into a boat and sail across the sea. But what is often lost on us when we read that 
is that they are leaving their homeland of Judea. It is possible that some of those disciples were like Samwise Gamgee as he left the Shire. And they reached a point where they said, if I take one more step, it's the farthest I've ever been from home. Most likely, that's what these disciples are feeling. And the reason is because the Judeans, they were not allowed to even go into Gentile territory. The land itself was considered unclean. In fact, when they get into the boat to cross the sea at the end of Mark chapter 4, they encounter a great storm. And no doubt, no doubt the disciples would have seen that as a bad omen. I told you we shouldn't have been doing this. Where's this guy taking us? Clearly, God does not want us to go here. But then Jesus wakes up from his nap and he says, Siapio in Greek, which means shut up. And suddenly the winds and the sea are calm. They make it across the sea and they enter the land of the Gerasenes. The land was known as Decapolis, Greek for ten cities in the first century. It was called that because in that region there were ten major cities where the Roman government had their headquarters. As they got off the boat, a man runs up to them. And when Mark describes this guy, he is not somebody the disciples would like to spend time with. He's unclean, and he's actually unclean in three ways. First, we're told that this man is living among the tombs. Jews were not allowed to go anywhere near tombs, and if they did, then they would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. But it's important to note that this man wasn't living in the tombs because he wanted to. In fact, Mark tells us why he's there. It is because of the community. The community has banished him there because they did not want him around them and the only place left for him to go was the cemetery. So this man is unclean because he's living among the dead. The second way that he's unclean is that we later learn in this story is that the man lives in a land where pigs are raised. Pigs were about the most unclean animal you could imagine in Israelite theology. The fact that this guy lives in a land where pigs are raised makes him unclean. And the third reason that he's unclean is because he is possessed by an unclean spirit. He is demon-possessed. Now this can cause a lot of debate amongst people. How exactly should we understand it when we read a story in the Bible about possession? Well, if you have your GPS guide, you'll see that I want to offer three different ways to understand what is happening to this man because I think that the good news can be found in looking at it in all three ways. Ancient rabbis used to say that Scripture was like a diamond that you held up and held in the sunlight, and as you turned it, it refracted and showed different kinds of light. That Scripture's like that. That 
oftentimes we're told that there's one way to read it. Well, there's not one way to read it. There's multiple ways to read it. And the truth is, is that beauty and the gospel can be found in those multiple ways. So in that spirit, let's explore this story in three different ways. Spiritually, medically, and politically. So the first way of reading this story is to read it in the spiritual way. In this way, it's demon possession. Plain and simple. That's what the Bible says, so that's what it was. And that certainly could be. I have friends in ministry who have served in other areas of the world, and they have told me that there are things that they have seen and experiences that they have had that they can only describe as demonic. How should we think about demons? C.S. Lewis has a famous and powerful little book called The Screwtape Letters. The book is a series of letters to a young demon named Wormwood from his older demonic uncle named Screwtape. Screwtape is giving Wormwood advice on how to ensnare people away from their faith in God. In the introduction to the Screwtape letters, C.S. Lewis says this. Excuse me. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall when we think about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In other words, it's dangerous to dismiss demons as simply Uh, They don't really exist in our modern world. But it's just as dangerous to prop up demons and Satan to the point where you make them more powerful than they really are. In my childhood Sunday school class, I remember that there was a picture on the wall of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. And they were staring each other down. And I remember one day... One of the girls who was new and hadn't learned not to ask questions. I remember one day this girl raised her hand and asked, So, we believe in two gods? The teacher was sort of flummoxed and said, "Uh, No, just one god, but Satan is God's enemy. We do not believe in two gods, friends. There is one god. And Satan and the demons who follow him are not to be dismissed. But they are nothing, nothing compared to the power and the love of God found in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't dismiss the existence of demons, but we shouldn't dwell on them either. But the spiritual way of reading this story tells us that part of the mission of the kingdom of God is to do battle with the forces of darkness in our world. Jesus is willing and is able to descend into the darkness and is able to wage spiritual warfare with the forces of Satan and his demons. That's the good news of the spiritual way. 
Another way of reading this story is what we might call the medical way. Some people read stories of demon possession in the Bible as examples of extreme mental illness. And I can understand that perspective. This is the first century after all. They do not have the kinds of medical advances that we do, and there's not the understanding of mental illness that we have today. And as we look at both the description and the behavior of this man, we can see some signs of some mental distress. He doesn't seem to have control over his behavior, does he? And our passage even tells us that the man has been self-harming. Many people who suffer from mental illness today resort to harming their bodies. It is a way for them to feel something. It is a way for them to feel a kind of release from the pain that is pent up in their souls. And of course, there's also the fact that the community has ostracized the man. The community has driven this man to the cemetery on the outskirts of town. That's often the way that the mentally ill are treated, even in our day. Roughly 44 million Americans suffer from a mild to severe form of mental illness. Mental illness among youth is on a rapid rise. 20% of our veterans suffer from severe mental illness. 40% of our inmates, 40% of our inmates in our prisons suffer from severe mental illness. And 60% of the homeless in our country suffer from mental illness. Yet, despite those facts, there have been huge cuts to funding to programs to help treat those in our country with mental illness. $5.8 billion has been cut from the National Institute of Mental Health. $6.2 billion has been cut from housing programs for the mentally ill. Let's face it, folks. We're the people of the garrisons. We have often pushed our mentally ill sisters and brothers to the cemeteries of our own society. And reading this story in the medical way may be difficult for some folks. Because for those that we love who suffer from mental illness, they know that there is no quick cure. They might even pray that they could have an encounter with Jesus like this. All they have to do is run to Jesus and boom, they're cured. But that doesn't happen. Now let me say this. There is good news in this story for those of you who do or have people that you love that suffer from mental illness. Because here's what I see. I see that Jesus approaches this man and he doesn't see him as demonic. Jesus knows that deep down there is another identity that needs to be released. And whereas the community has pushed this man to the cemetery, Jesus isn't afraid of him. 
Jesus did not cast him out or try to chain him up. Jesus viewed this man with dignity. And what he did for this man is he restored his place in the community. May we do likewise. The third way of reading and interpreting this story is probably the way that is the least familiar to us. It's the political way. I warned you on the first week where we looked at the Gospel of Mark that in Mark, the Gospel is political. And you still came back. (laughs) The disciples get out of the boat and this man who is possessed sees them. He runs up to Jesus and the man screams, What do you want with me, Jesus? Do not torment me. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he's not talking to the man. The demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now this is where stuff gets really interesting. When Jesus asked the man his name, the demon responds with the word Legion. Why that word? Why not say a lot, thousands? Because legion was not a normal word one would use to describe lots of something. Instead, legion is a military term. In fact, it was a Roman military term. A legion was a group of about 6,000 Roman soldiers, and they were stationed all over the world. The 10th legion of the Roman army was stationed in Jerusalem, and its insignia, its banner that it held when it went into battle, on that banner was, are you ready for this? A pig. It was a wild boar. So there's some symbolism in this story that is suddenly making some sense when you see it as part of a bigger picture. In Mark, Jesus is not just confronting the demonic powers of darkness, he's confronting the demonic powers of darkness and they sound an awful lot like the empire that ruled over the land. The demons beg Jesus, send us into those pigs over there. So Jesus does. And the pigs go crazy, and like lemmings, they run off a cliff. And there are some more clues in this story that help us realize that Jesus is confronting the Roman Empire. The word used for a herd of pigs is not the normal word used for herd. Instead, it uses a military term. In verse 13, when it says that Jesus permits the demons to enter the pigs for this is a military term for they are dismissed and then finally charge furthermore for the romans the pig was a sacred animal that was often sacrificed to their gods reading the story this way Jesus is battling the political forces at work in the world. He is demonstrating that he has power even over the Roman Empire. 
In fact, compared to the power of Christ, the Roman Empire might as well be a herd of piglets screaming as they throw themselves into the sea. But Mark wants us to know that this is not merely just a partisan political statement. This is not as simple as Jesus marching down to Rome and overthrowing the empire because this story shows us that there are forces behind the work even of the empire. Dark, demonic forces. And it is those that Jesus has come to do battle with. Not the Roman people themselves, but the forces behind them. It's like Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So how do we read this story? Do we read it spiritually? Do we read it medically? Do we read it politically? Of course, the answer is, Yes, because there is the good news of the gospel found in all three ways of reading this. The spiritual reading teaches us that Jesus is involved in spiritual warfare and that with the demonic forces at work in this world, and he conquers those forces and liberates those who are oppressed by them, and that is good news. The medical reading teaches us that even in the grip of mental and emotional forces that can feel demonic, Jesus Christ sees people as what they really are, beloved children of God. And that is good news. The political reading teaches us that Jesus Christ is not uninvolved in the matters of the world, but is far more powerful than any country, any empire, any nation that seeks to set itself up as the ruler of humanity. And that is good news. There's one more element of this story that I want to touch on before we go. After this man is healed, clearly, townspeople encounter him, but he's changed, clearly. He's wearing clothes, and he's moved out of the cemetery. And how do the people respond to this change? Mark tells us that they are afraid. Pay attention. Mark doesn't say that they were necessarily afraid by what happened to the pigs. They weren't necessarily afraid of what happened with the demons. It's when they saw the man in his right mind, they were afraid. Why? I think it's because deep down, they are mourning their way of identifying this man. The labels they used to use for him are now gone. He used to be somebody who it was easy to push to the margins. Somebody they could ostracize out to the tombs. But now, they have to look him in the eye. They have to treat him like an equal. Otis Moss Jr. was a well-known African-American pastor he retired in 2008. 
He has a powerful sermon on this passage from Mark called Going from Disgrace to Dignity. And in that sermon, he comments on the experience of African Americans in the society of the United States. He says this, As long as we were struggling in the cotton fields of Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi with our cotton sacks across our shoulders and to our sides picking cotton and having our fingers burning from stinging cotton worms, America was satisfied with us. But one day America saw us marching to the voting booth and sitting down at lunch counters. And all of America became afraid. Racism is rooted in fear. It is rooted in the fear that the arbitrary differences that I've erected between you and me, the things that I use to justify how I can treat you differently, it is rooted in the fear that those don't actually matter. In a way... I think that's why the townspeople are afraid of what Jesus has done for this man. And at the end of the story, the man chases Jesus down as he's getting ready to get back into the boat. And he pleads, let me come with you. But Jesus, surprisingly, looks him in the eye and says, no, I need you to stay here. I need you to stay here and to tell all of these people about me. They need you to stay here. This man was nothing but a nuisance to his community. But Jesus has healed him. But he has been this him from something. He's also saved him for something. He has given man a calling, a job a vocation. He has restored this man's dignity. Jesus Christ has given him a purpose and Jesus Christ has given his life meaning. And sisters and brothers, that is what Jesus Christ offers to you. A calling, purpose, meaning for your life, healing, that's what Jesus Christ has done in my life. And that is what he offers to you today. Pray with me. God, we ask that you would help us to be people who take the words of the story and seek to live it out. Help us to be people who are willing to go to the cemetery to find the people that have been pushed to the margins of society and acting as your ambassadors of reconciliation, look them in the eye and treat them with dignity and respect. God, help us to know that when forces of darkness, whether they be spiritual, medical, or political, whenever forces of darkness seem to overtake us, that we would be reminded that neither height nor depth, 
nor rulers, nor principalities, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from your love. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.